Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the July 2nd, 2019 edition of Ask a Leader. Today, Rachel Bittekofer, political scientist and forecaster at the Wason Center at Christopher Newport University, returns to this show to bring her inestimable model of forecasting, fresh off the press, and what the electoral map will look like in 2020. And uh, we're going to just patch you right through here. I'm going to just a second here. Rachel Bittacoffer, political scientist and forecaster at the Wayson Center at Christopher Newport University, returns to the show to bring her inestimable model forecasting and fresh off the press on what the electoral map will look like in 2020. The second half, Citizens Climate Lobby activist Mark Tabert and Virginia Bernal will talk about the heady times they had on Capitol Hill this last month, last in June, and in ways in which the political ground is shifting on climate policy. So we'll be right back after a very short station break. Thanks for staying tuned, everybody. Rachel is Bittacofer is a busy woman, so we're not going to have as long a segment with her as we really, really, really want. She is the <laughs> assistant director of the Wason Center for Public Policy at Christopher Newport University in Virginia. Her courses cover political behavior, campaigns, elections, and political analysis. In her position with the Wayson Center, she conducts survey research on public policy issues and election campaigns. She recently was appointed senior fellow at the Niskanen Center. That's a Washington, D.C.-based think tank that advocates for environmentalism, immigration reform, civil liberties, and a national defense policy based on libertarian principles. I just want to make sure everybody knows that's part of Rachel's portfolio. Rachel completed her Bachelor's of Science in Political Science at University of Oregon and her PhD in Political Science at the University of Georgia. Her work's been in the Washington Post, USA Today, Huffington Post, NPR, and she's a regular contributor on CBC Radio. Her publications include the book, Unprecedented 2016 Presidential Election, It's Not the Message, Partisan Cues in a Polarized Era, and Seeing is Believing, the Role of Geographic proximity in mitigating partisan attitudes toward environmental issues. A year ago, that's July last year, folks, Rachel called the November 2018 midterm election outcome, including our Orange County congressional races. Updates aplenty with the rollout of her latest predictions fresh out yesterday, July 1st. She comes to us today from Newport News, Virginia. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, Rachel Bittekoffer. Well, thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you. And without trying to uh, hack your secret sauce, briefly <laughs> tell us, Rachel, about your unique, innovative method of predicting outcomes that you might be able to lord over the competition. Yeah, and I would urge anybody listening to this, if, if they have their eyes, their phone or their computer, go ahead to the Watson Center website, take a look at this forecast so they can follow along. Um, but, but it is innovative. It's a total departure, actually, from the way that Nate Silver um, does forecasting, where he's using polls and he um, kind of needs to get pretty close to the election. What I'm doing is I'm looking at the polarization of the electorate. I'm arguing, look, back in the days, you might have been able to convince voters to vote for you if you were giving a strong economy or if you were particularly uh, likable, like maybe Bill Clinton. But those days have long passed. And today, Americans are sorted ideologically into these two warring camps. And those two camps are kind of predictable in terms of who's in them. Um, you know, Republicans are increasingly white, uh, increasingly older, uh, Democrats are, um, you know, more diverse, more women, more young. Um, and because we can kind of say with some certainty, and we have all this big data now in terms of the voter files, uh, who's going to vote um, and which way they're going to vote, we should be able to use that to forecast the outcome of elections. So that's what I did. 
for 2018, and as you pointed out, I you know was very accurate, almost down to the seat, months in advance. And so I'm taking that model now and looking at the Electoral College. So I'm qu- uh, quickly, because um, we have so many questions out here to, to bring to you, but so it's tribe, it's sort of, it's looking at, back at the voter themselves. They're not looking, it's not about the candidates, it's all about self. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's looking, it doesn't even consider the Democratic nominee. As I say, the nominee um, in my health forecast didn't have any consideration of the candidate. Yeah, um, wow. You know, in, wow. In, in, political, in political science, Traditionally, we've looked at something called candidate quality as being important. Yes. You know, is this person, uh, you know, have they run for office before? Or are they able to, like, tap into that skill and the networking that they've done from that? My model, um, the candidate quality variable, I, I attempted to include after I went and back-checked it with the actual election results. Candidate quality didn't matter at all. We, newcomers won just as easily as people who came from uh, previous elected office, right? So, um, you know, in this 2020 model, this, you know, obviously we don't know who the Democratic nominee is. And furthermore, there's a lot of hand-wringing right now about, oh, it must be this moderate, oh, it has to be a progressive. Basically, I argue it doesn't matter because at the end of the day, Republicans, as as awful as Trump is, Republicans are going to get in line. And, And, you know, there is a chunk of Republicans that just love Donald Trump. And Republican turnout was much higher in 2018 for a midterm than Republican turnout in 2014 was, just like it surged for Democrats. And then um, in terms of moderate Republicans, no matter how much of a moderate Democrat nominate, I mean, it could be Steve Bullock, who's the governor of Montana. Democrat, uh, Republicans, moderate Republicans are not going to defect. They're, they're going to ultimately look at things like control of the Supreme Court and they are going to support Donald Trump as chaotic as he is. And that's a, a total misunderstanding of where we are in politics today and of where the electorate is in the modern era to think that that's possible. Instead, when we look at how elections swing, it's a matter of who's enthusiastic to show up to vote. And when and we look at 2016, it wasn't that Trump won over people. It's that Democrats were complacent. Uh, I say they were fat and happy with Obama in office, and they got a little lazy and let their guard down. And it was just enough for Trump to come sneaking in. So to an earlier point you were making that we've got now, we're just flooded with Democratic choices, and there's been some really interesting sort of diagnostics about too many choices turn uh, choice optimization to choice satisfiers, which doesn't get. I mean, it's it's probably what did happen in 2016, in the, when there were so many, there was a flood of Republican contenders, <laughs> and so now we have we have that opposite in 2020 with so many. Uh, how how does that play out with the uh, that kind of theory of the overwhelming of choices and for a voter to make sense with a, this whole tribal piece that you're talking about going into this discussion? Yeah, so if it wasn't for the fact that, you know, Donald Trump was in office and Democrats have their priorities in line this time around, as I point out in the forecast, you know, this huge, you know, choice uh, and all this fractal, you know, identity fighting that's going on would be a big problem for Democrats. As I mean, that's what killed them in 2016, ultimately, the Bernie Kratz weren't brought couldn't be brought on board the clinton campaign you know they have strategists from the stone age who don't understand how important it is to mobilize your own voters so they ultimately picked like, somebody they thought would appeal to moderate republicans in tim kane what they really needed to be doing was bringing you know in for sure the bernie crats who they just assumed would show up and vote for them and that turned out to be the wrong assumption uh, and they really needed somebody that would mobilize the base and bring those base voters back in for that VP pick. So um, that tribalism, though, that stuff is going to all look really serious. It's going to cause a lot of hand-wringing for the next eight months. But ultimately, when it comes down to the summer and the convention next year, 
Democrats are going to fall in line behind their nominee because they are not going to risk Donald Trump. So you come out way out in front now for the 2020 electoral map. It's all there. It's 297 to 191 kind of electoral votes in favor of of a Democrat. But I want to get to this is that's a long ways off. What are the hazards of coming out so soon? And I want to break it down. What pieces could be happening? What could be in play that whether you not think you think they're a factor. So why so early, Rachel? Because I can. I mean, my point is that all of this stuff is basically set in stone. It's the it is. The point I made in July 1st of last year. And, you know, I got a lot of blowback from the conventional handicappers and the forecasters. Yes. You know, when I came out and said, no, 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 you guys, it's not a matter of if the Democrats can pick up the control of the House. They needed 23 seats. They're definitely going to pick up at least 23 seats. They're, you know, I'm looking more at like 40 seats. And they thought, oh, you're crazy. And you're crazy to make that kind of bold prediction in July. Right. As you said, (laughs) and when we were last together. So then there's targeted suppression. You bring that up a little bit in your analysis. And the, uh, I'm saying there's the new improved bots. We have no idea how sophisticated they could be. There's, uh, voters literacy, like they're in the Democratic debates. There were new points brought up about immigration code and then there's the sort of um you know is is nuance is there a deeper grasp of nuance that's going to change any of this and will like the factor of a a full-blown natural or man-made disaster or 30 third-party candidate none of those things are going to push away your outcome so i say in the analysis that there you know the only way that anything would change in this forecast is is if a very large shock to the system occurred. Uh, And I point out a couple of examples. I mean, the most important, I think, and most relevant in terms of, you know, most of the shocks would hurt Trump, not help him. So an economic recession would only exasperate his problems, for example. But the, the most dangerous thing for Democrats would be the emergence of a Howard Schultz in the general election. Yes. And, you know, because he has billions of dollars, so he doesn't need to have a wide range of support. And and also, and, and Republicans are not dumb. I mean, they're much better strategists than de- than Democrats are. They're going, they recognize this math problem that Trump has. He's never had a pl- he's never been a majority president. He's a plurality president. He's got this major plurality problem in every state. He really can't win with one candidate against him. He needs, they need to fracture the race. So I think they're going to be working very heavily to con- recruit someone like Schultz to run. And if they could lure him in, you know, I ran a national survey to test. I mean, I knew, I, I had a sense that it, this would be the case, and the, and the data bears this out. For every five voter, every one right. voter that's attracted to Schultz from Trump's pot, five come from the Democratic pot, right? Because there's all those moderate independents that would be attracted to someone like Schultz. And at the end of the day, I think Schultz wouldn't be able to pull off more than 2 to 5% in this climate. But that that's all he needs. decisive in, in swing states. Right, so right, that's right. The, that's the real only time I would see me having to revamp this forecast. For those of you who've just joined us, we have for at least a few more minutes, Rachel Bittikoff, her political pollster. She's assistant director of the Wason. It's no, you said you, it's the Wasson? Yeah, it's Wasson. Wasson mm-hmm. Center for the Public Policy at Christopher Newport University in Virginia and out in front with some really rapid polling and forecasting analysis about the 2020, yes, folks, 2020 presidential election. So finishing up the Democratic debates or after that, Heidi Heitkamp, former senator, South Dakota, posts the points coming out of those debates that the GOP has their talking points done, finished, end of campaign. But do you, yep. you think? Oh, yes. Okay. Wow. So, I mean, I haven't, I haven't heard what she said, but I mean. <laughs> it was on Sunday on um, National Public Radio. She was talking about that in a sort of one of those, uh, yeah, in a barbershop yeah. oh, yeah. kinds of th- four yeah. or five so, ways. I mean, their, their talking points are going to be quite clear. It's going to be, um, you, know, you know, fear of brown people, so the immigration invasion, uh, redux from the 2018 midterms, and it worked really well at, at galvanizing Republicans to the polls, but also socialism. They're just going to hammer, hammer, hammer Democrats on Medicare for all and, um, you know, abolish ICE and things like that. So, but but in this graphic 
sort of posturing and and card playing and not that kind of a thing. Are there any optics coming from the border that could really rally and uh, tap into that factor you talk about is the anger factor, that people are so, so distraught over the on our collective watch, these kinds of inhumane uh, scenarios are taking place. How much how in the like in the public choice theory discussion of what what can mobilize people how how potent are the optics that are available right now from the board right down to uh, the revelation last night about the women in detention who they look really drawn that their water supply is coming from a toilet bowl yeah yeah these optics are great for democrats if they could exploit them effectively the problem with democrats is that they tend to be afraid or incapable of effectively exploiting things like that. I mean, I I will be waiting to see what their strategy is. I mean, they I certainly, you know, the strategist in me expects that they would choose at this point to remind voters of these, you know, atrocities and, and, and rile up, you know, tap into that Democratic angst. I mean, that's, that's what they need to do if they want to win. But, you know, they never cease to amaze me in their, um, you know, strategic incompetence. So, Well, diffidence is another word that comes to mind, yes. Uh, So I wanted to look at whether this sizable gorilla in the room, the partisan gerrymandering that was enabled by the Supreme Court of the United States ruling this last week, so the implications of redistricting, is that... A, um, a factor of mobilizing voters this is just too cryptic. Oh, for, for mobilizing voters, down ticket. Like people realize, oh, this we need to make sure we have a certain party in control to meet out uh, how our districts look. Yes, absolutely. And, and in fact, um, you know, here in Virginia, where I do a lot yes. of survey research, uh, gerrymandering is a very hot issue, and, in, and the Virginia legislature because Republicans have been forced with some court-ordered redistricting based on racial gerrymanders they enacted almost a decade ago and and benefited from for almost a decade, um, are about to lose control of the state assembly. And so their hand was forced, right? So they've agreed to some modest redistricting reform amendments that have been pushed. But anyway, citizen groups have been working to get this issue on the agenda of the public for a long time. And we've really seen the salience or the importance of this issue take off. In it Virginia. is. It, it is really salient. is an issue that resonates with voters, which is astounding because it is a complex issue. Yes. It's not something that's easy for people to understand. And it tells me that everywhere this would be an effective issue and message for Democrats to use to get people to show up to vote. And, and I should probably close out by saying, too, there is not an issue in America for Democrats right now I mean, there are places that are exception, Wyoming, okay, or uh, Idaho, sure. But in many, many places, there's not an issue right now that could not be fixed by just getting 20% more of people who would agree with Democrats to pay attention to politics and out to the polls. So before you or not. before you head out, there's ways that you folks can follow you. You've got an app that you're working on. Tell us about that. And when uh, we want to make sure that you get back here when you push out your Orange County polling results, because you you're promising those are coming up pretty soon. Yes, that's exactly right. I'm taking a deep dive into the voter file out there in, in Orange County. Um, and also here in Virginia, to push back on this idea that the blue wave was powered by the persuasion of moderate Republicans to vote for these Democrats uh, in these swing districts. It's an empirically false claim, and I'm going to show that through some data. All right. Well, Rachel Bittekoffer, thank you so much for being on Ask a Leader today. Well, thank you so much for having me. Rachel Bittekoffer is the Assistant Director of the Wasson Center for Public Policy, and she's a senior fellow at the Niskanen Center and out in front with some really interesting forecasting about the 2020 electoral map. We'll be right back after a station break with Mark Tabbert and Virginia Bernal. Don't go away.
Thanks for staying tuned, everybody. That was Chicory and Bella Fleck with the track Sunset Road on the Enchantment album. Welcome back to the show. My next guests are Virginia Bernal and Mark Tabbert, both Citizens Climate Lobby organizers with the latest in climate change activism, fresh for meetings on the Hill and around in the district field offices in Orange County. Mark Tabbert, co-founder of the Newport Beach area chapter of the Citizens Climate Lobby, is responsible... I say this every time he comes on. He's been, he may be the record-holding returning guest on this show. He's responsible <laughs> for spawning new chapters around Orange County. He lives in Newport Beach, the 48th Congressional District. He's appeared many times, I've said. Vic, Virginia Bernal first became involved as an activist in climate work when she worked on the Orange County for Climate Action. She joined Citizens Climate Lobby in 2015. She lives in the 46th Congressional District. She's continued as a Citizens Climate Lobby liaison and is co-founding with Gwen Conway a new chapter in and has established it by now at, at in Santa Ana. And she's now retired from her nursing career related to a lifelong concern over economic underdevelopment and the welfare of women and children around the world. Her career as an RN it's included maternal child health at UCI Medical Center and later as a lactation consultant. She matriculated at UC Berkeley, earned her Bachelor's of Arts in Geography at Cal State University Long Beach and her Administrative Assistant in Registered Nursing Program at Saddleback Community College in that order. So they both joined me in studio today. Welcome back, both of you, to Ask a Leader, Virginia and Mark. Thank you, thank you. Hi, I'm glad to be here. So what? W- let's um, start with earlier this year, we've had Kathy Orlinsky with the Citizens Climate Lobby Conference, Shahir Masri, before he embarked on his West Coast trip, and now... It's a pleasure to have Virginia and Mark to post us on what's happening on Capitol Hill. First, we're going to do a progress report on House Resolution 763, Carbon Pricing and Energy Innovation Act. Where are we right now? We're now up to 50 sponsors of the bill, 49 49 Democrats and one Republican. And one reason we believe that we're not having more Republicans sign on to the bill like we did last time it was introduced is because Republicans are working on their own climate change legislation behind the closed doors. Uh, we don't know what that is because it's closed doors, but really, everybody in Washington now is aware that climate change is a growing issue on both sides of the aisle. Does it keep feeling different every time you go make another pass through the, the hill? Well, it's never felt different like it did this year. Right, Virginia? Yeah, uh, there was a lot of enthusiasm for the um, knowing more about the bill. So we're going to talk about where that bill is at this point. You've got some more signers on. You have the Silicon Valley Leadership Group. You've got more of uh, the, the former chairs of the Federal Reserve. You've got Nobel laureates in the Economist and all that. So let's talk about the support that's racking up there for the resolution. For not the resolution, we're going to call it. It's the, it's the act. It's the well, House resolution. Actually, let me, let me make a... A differentiation here. There's really two things going on right now that are supportive of the bill. One is people talk about carbon pricing, and one they talk about our bill. So a group like the Presbyterian Church has actually endorsed the bill. So have the Catholic bishops. And I can't go through the list in my head, but there's, a, there's about half of the people that you just named that support carbon pricing. And our, that's exactly what our bill is. So in a sense, they haven't endorsed our bill, perhaps, but they're endorsing the concept of our bill. They just don't, it's pretty early on in the new Congress to be supporting a bill sometimes for some groups. There are a number of big environmental groups that are supportive of carbon pricing that say things that would all be good for us to hear, uh, but they're not ready to endorse the bill yet. And that's not a problem. Uh, if there was another bill on, that was competing with us right now, but there really isn't. The only two things we're competing with right now, in a sense, are resolutions, which are not bills. Uh, one is Matt Gates in Florida, a Republican, who's come out with the new Green Deal. Yeah, we've talked a little bit about that. The I'm, green, I'm sorry, the Green New Green, Deal. Green I'm Real Deal. The green Real Deal, yes. Right, right. Well, we'll talk a little bit about that, but I, I'm... And wanting to build up literacy about what is going on with the carbon pricing and with the 
green the new green deal for raising sort of the the activists that are really trying to break ground i i I don't matt gets to me is not an honest partner in this negotiation because of the kind of the language he's freighted his his objectives with that are really just not going to move the needle one iota for me so I, so we'll, we'll talk if, if you want to challenge that. Yes, Virginia. Yes, I wanted to add something, and that is that in terms of supporting carbon pricing, just yesterday the U.S. Conference of Mayors endorsed okay. carbon pricing. They did not specifically name our resolution. What's interesting is that they also that endorsed, is interesting. That they also endorsed uh, lots of climate um, actions, of them, I would cite one of them is the Green New Deal. They also endorse that. It so goes to show you that they're not contradictory, but they're complementary. Right. Comprehensive response to climate change, maintaining the EPA's fuel economy standards, the clean car standards. Um, they even added uh, encouraging cities to use carbon dioxide mineralized concrete for buildings because concrete uh, is one of the... Uh, a huge yes. carbon footprint. So uh, it's interesting that they're really on board with trying to get something done on, on climate. So that's the uh, climate mayors. I also wanted to mention uh, regarding the co-sponsors of the bill. By the way, we did add one more, so it's now 52. <laughs> oh, that's two more than I thought. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sorry. It's, it's actually it's the main sponsor plus 51. We added one. We had just 50 uh, a, couple, a day ago. Just yesterday. Uh, 51 to 1, or are there more Republicans? The, the Democrats except for the one, uh, uh, se- uh, Rooney. Francis Rooney. Francis Rooney, okay. yes. Uh-huh. Uh, but what I wanted to mention is that almost half of the co-sponsors also co-sponsor the Green New Deal. So again, another way to indicate these two movements or actions are not contradictory, they're complementary. Mark, do you want to react to that? Because uh, we, we've sparred a bit about this this feature. You mean about the... Uh, How to re- that both of these shows can go on in the discussion. I'm going to read a quote from okay, AOC. Far, this far is a out. quote from AOC. Freshman Alexandria or Casio Cortez, the the proponents, the Green New Deal proponents' biggest champion, said she backs a carbon tax. I think the point of this conversation has shifted enough that the carbon tax is conceivably a very moderate policy now. See what a carbon price does? It puts a foundation on everything. It helps everything. I'm trying to think of the scientist uh, that wrote. He writes a book, Drawdown, which talks about all the things we need to do to address climate change that we've already got into the atmosphere and into the ground. And he says everything in that book is helped by our carbon price. Well, the truth is everything that AOC wants is helped by our, our bill, too. They're not exclusive at all. Actually, it's ours is it, foundational. Paul Hawkins associated Paul with Hawken, that. Paul right. Yeah, who's always in your signature block there. Yes. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's so, there's so many contributors, so... Yeah, yes, the, the, big difference, the big difference, I think, has to do with what you do with the revenue. That's where the big difference is. Um, we would like to have it revenue neutral. All the revenues go to, to American households in an equal basis. Very many Democrats want to continue with a lot of regulation. That's something else. But in terms of the revenue, they would like to invest in infrastructure, at least in part or wholly. And that would become a very regressive tax. Yeah, so that's, that's what. So that's that's part of the the intricacies here. Yes, it's always been. I mean, Republicans, if they were in charge of the fee that you collect from the fossil fuel industry, they would probably give a lot of the money to corporations. But obviously, we don't support that, and we don't want to see the money go to subsidies. We don't want to see it go to mm-hmm. government trying to pick winners in the market. If you give the money, because you pick, when you pick winners, you pick losers, and there's the equity problem, the square and center. Yeah, the government does not have a strong record in picking winners in the marketplace. They often produce things that don't win. So, <laughs> yeah. we if the money goes all back to people, it puts the money in the hands of people, and everybody becomes engaged with this issue. If you give the market a clear message that the price of carbon of carbon fuels are going to rise on a steady basis like this bill does, what happens is everybody in the world goes to work because to save. To, to try to figure out how to conserve or do it differently. We waste so much energy right now just for not conserving energy because it's virtually free to Americans. 
you know, we pay $3 for gas and Europe pays 8 or 7 whatever it is. Uh, well, it's actually, so it's gone waste, up. We're, uh, if you talk to the Indian prime minister about our habits versus their habits, he'll point to our cities lit up at night like, you know, like it's a Hollywood opening. Well, and everybody's power load is it's it's uh not put on silence we're we're juicing all of our appliances round the clock so yeah we're just we're running it so the carbon tax would give incentives for even at the household level to cut back oh for sure because our utilities so that's that's what i was wanting to find out whether utilities they're directly taxed no they're not it's the consumer no. You want to, of the utility. want to tax as far upstream as you can. Okay. So you tax the well, the mine, and the port. And when you do that, every ounce of carbon, that's, that every, every ounce of pollution is taxed at the same level. So if, if you're making steel uh, or making concrete the old-fashioned way versus a new way, and there is a new way to do concrete, something even stronger than concrete. I just met a developer in the last two weeks right here in Newport Beach who's got all sorts of ways to build sustainable housing with a concrete that's not concrete. Mm-hmm. It's a lot lower carbon footprint. We'll see his deal is helped immediately by putting a price on carbon. It's fair to people that are poor and middle class because they're, they're going to actually make a profit a lot of them on this deal because they don't burn much carbon. Mm-hmm. Most of the carbon is burnt by people with money that are spending money. That's where you burn carbon. It's that fancy dinner you have. It's the dress you buy. It's everywhere you. It's everything you touch. It's your travel. It's your, yeah, but I hate to mention travel because I don't want think. I don't want Republicans to think. Oh, I'm going to take away your ability to fly an airplane. Well, no, but I say that because I still am aware of how casually leisure travel is opted for when I, I don't hear a whiff of accountability about you know somebody's just darting over to somebody's family you know just a, here's, a, here's an announcement of something it's not get it's the those air travel trips are not getting enough work done for but that see, trip here's the problem mm-hmm. if you talk about a person's virginia agrees i agree yeah and today kpcc is having a program on that i don't remember which one it is but they're talking about tourism carbon footprint the problem with talking about a person's carbon footprint is so you're saying you it's back off, down the pipe. You turn off the Republicans immediately. They're going to drop the conversation and run away from you. They don't want to hear you tell them well, what Mark, to do. Well, Mark, there's a small, I call them, there's the big room questions, big room discourse, and the small one. That one-on-one we can say, like, really? You really wanted to take that trip? It's not, a, it's not the big echo chamber. It's the, it's the one-on-one holding each other accountable for I'm going to be taking a trip later on this summer and I really need to make that work for many many purposes I can't just show up that's not it's no good the problem is you're long past the day where your individual action on carbon footprint makes any difference at all Bill McKibben says that everybody that's involved with this thing at any kind of a uh, a deep level understands that carbon it actually, it actually worked against us to talk carbon footprint. It was talked carbon footprint in the beginning because it was treated as an environmental deal, like ozone and the acid rain. But that's where you had a problem with very few sources. We have a problem now where everybody's guilty. And if you make everybody guilty, a lot of people turn you off. And that's what happens. Right now, we need to stop talking it's, carbon footprint. I agree that it, it has been a fraught discussion. They've, they've been very unpleasant. So you're going back to the very beginning, the spigot of where the carbon is being. Exactly. You're going back. The reason there were good nonprofits working on climate change solutions back in when um, when cap and trade passed in California, they sued to try to stop it because it's going to cause a problem with a lot of Democrats today. There are Democrats in California that worked hard to pass that bill. And they're going to work against carbon pricing at a national level because they're worried about the money that they go they get now from the uh, cap and trade deal in California. So Schwarzenegger did a great thing. He brought up this issue on a national basis. He was awesome. By the same token, the way they did it is not the right way to treat carbon. You need to price carbon at the well, the mine, the port. For those of you who've just tuned in, my guests are... Virginia Bernal and Mark Tabert, Citizens Climate 
lobby activist with the latest on the climate change discourse in both the nation's capital and in our district offices here. Um, and I, I want to make sure while we're talking about this, let's go really local with where political movement is occurring. It's really phenomenal that the Santa Ana City Council supported on June 4th with a vote of 4-2 to two to sign on to carbon pricing. What was the actual resolution, Virginia? It was actual support for the Energy Innovation Act. It specifically stated that. Um, I myself was surprised. We had been pursuing the city council to look at this, um, but uh, they actually, in their own turn, took the initiative with one of our members inviting their council, uh, ward council member, Vicente Sarmiento, to try to work on this. And he says, sure, I'll put it on the agenda. So once it happened, it happened so rapidly, we were very surprised and very pleased. So let's, take, let's just dissect that for a moment. So one citizen's climate lobby person approaches a, and this is a new term, this is the first term for a no, council? No, he's been for there several terms. Several yes. terms, Tarmiento. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. so what, was there an education process or did this council member already, was it, they already were aware of, of this legislation or what? Let's just find, figure out the sort of anatomy and the physiology of, of this support mobilizing here on the municipal level. Well, first of all, Santa Ana has had a climate action plan since 2015. The They're only problem with their climate action plan, unlike the one in San Diego, is that they didn't have enforcement. Uh, so they needed funding to really carry it through. So they're trying to do it piece by piece. They're moving out of must to a should proposition. Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh huh. And um, so they have been looking at this for several years now. Vicente Sarmiento is the president of the Orange County Water District, takes care of the uh, groundwater basin. Uh, so he's very aware of the environmental circumstances. Good number of the councilmen, f- the four that voted positive, are very concerned. I've heard another councilman say, I'd like to make Santa Ana 100% renewable. So they have that ambition, and they're trying, so they found this a good avenue to express their beliefs of what we should be doing. Now, the dynamic there, did they exert leadership to sort of ask the mayor Polido to step up, or was he also disposed? I mean, he has some, he has some environmental portfolio. Yes, he is a climate mayor. Or major, I mispronounce that all the time. Um, and um, in fact, he was there in Hawaii during this uh, resolution that was just passed by the um, American um, Conference of Mayors. Yeah, I mean, they did not be, need to be pushed very far. I think they might have been made aware we, because we had been trying to contact all of them and sending them the information. Uh, there was not a back and forth communication that we could see, but we have been trying to reach them, all of them. Um, Apparently you did. <laughs> Apparently, yeah. So, and is there a dynamic then, let's say, between the council and the congressman, Lou Correa? Does does he see what Santa Ana's shift is in committing to policy like this? Regrettably, I have not spoken with a congressman since the resolution on this matter. So I don't know what his response is. We're trying to get another meeting with him so we could discuss it. And I'm also looking to see other endorsers that might be uh, of value to persuade him that we need to go this way also. Other endorsers in Congress? In the... Or in, in his constituency, his district. district. Okay. In our district. And in preparation for this interview, a couple of weeks ago, you talked to me about there's a whole difference between what kind of discourse takes place at the district office level versus what's happening on the Hill. What did you... What's some revelation there in your experience? Well, um, I think when we saw him in D.C., he was uh, looking at so many other issues that he was not quite uh, very involved. Whereas when we saw him in district, there's much more time, it's more relaxed. He was full of questions. Our congressman seemed to be very interested. In fact, when I went to D.C., I was surprised he was not ready to you know, jump on board, uh, but he was not. He still needs a few more questions answered, and we're trying to do that. So, Virginia, is your experience then to listeners that we have a huge resource in working the heck out of our district offices to Def- definitely for 
Yeah, I think mobilizing. At least in my experience, the district office is a place where you can really communicate with your congressman. Okay, Mark, is that your experience too? Well, I mean, actually, with Dana Rohrbacher, our former congressman, he was very accessible to us. Uh, we became pretty good friends with Dana, despite the differences in our beliefs about climate change and everything else, actually. But we never talked about anything but climate change with him. But we could reach him. I had a cell number. I had his email address, private one. So he was reachable. And the staff, actually, locally, didn't like us at all because they kept telling us, He's never going to listen to you guys, but he kept talking to us. Uh, now, it, going to Washington now and sitting down with Harley Ruda and Gil Cisneros, like I got to do this trip, it's yeah. like unbelievable difference. I mean, Gil Cisneros, chief of staff, walked us downstairs, took Gil out of a, a committee meeting that he oh? was in. Yes. Got passes for all of us. We went down on the in the Capitol floor, and he came out of the meeting and talked. You weren't to in us. the gallery. You were down on the floor. We with were them? down. No, not, not on the floor, but we were behind up in the, the gallery. The, the conferences happen not on the floor. Oh the yeah, conference. yeah, on the conference space. But it was okay. in the, But it was in the Capitol, so we had to go on a special walk. And uh, I mean, and he listened to us, and we took pictures with him. I mean, and he's so we're asking these congressmen in Orange County. There's four of them now that are sponsors. All four. Katie Porter and Harley Ruda and Gil Cisneros and Mike Levin. And we're writing, we're working right now to write a letter to the four of them as because there's four chapters involved with these four congressmen. Virginia's got one, I've got one, and we have two others. We're trying to get those congressmen to raise this issue to a higher level. I'm not sure that anybody in Congress I'm not sure anybody really understands how powerful this bill is. It reduces emissions by 90% by 2050. And it's, it's, there's a road to do that. It's proven by economic modeling. It's, it's not some dream. It's real deal. Why do you think the pickup is what it is? Because people in Congress are so inundated with things to do, including raising money. It's a bandwidth for, issue. Yeah. But by the same token... Harley Ruda, if you listen to him in his committee chairmanship role, he's, he's the head of a subcommittee within the oversight the infrastructure committee, too. Mm -hmm. the environmental aspect. He's a passionate person about climate change. He's a wonderful, he makes me cry, he's a wonderful human being. I mean, it's so different than going to see Dana Rohrbacher. And we could talk about the legislation that we favor, but we could not talk about climate change. If we did, he would just open up all this fake science of his so it's uh it's a real exciting time for us so you were in advance of this interview you were talking about there's a pause going on so the the pause aspect of the the house resolution hr 763 fill us in on there i i could take about 20 minutes right now on this well, thing because it's important. let's give it let about six <laughs> let me just say this Right now, we have support from the Environmental Defense Fund, the Nature Conservancy, the World Resources Institute, the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, the Presbyterian Church, the Friends Committee on National Legislation, and a long list of other people that support our legislation. Some specifically, but, but in Congress, it doesn't matter if they endorse your bill or support your bill. To Congress, it's one and the same. And so we have those kind of people supporting us, but there are some very, very great environmental groups, and I won't name them, who are not saying right now anything about our bill. Because? They're being quiet. Because the very progressive, some of the very progressive people in, in the world that we, that we love, some of those people don't believe in capitalism. Some of them don't believe in anything that's done with the market. If you talk about a market solution to a lot of Democrats, you lose them. They They're see equity like, issues. But it's only because they haven't looked at the issue, because the, the only regulations that aren't doing anything in our bill are things that aren't doing anything. In other words, the power plan is affected, but the power plan never was in fact, wasn't in, put into effect. Obama took six years to get that introduced, and then he fought in the Supreme Court and lost, or at least was delayed. Well, yeah. And then, and now Obstruction. Trump... It takes in Congress, according to reliable sources in Congress, for an EPA regulation like the Clean Power Plan to be to be put into effect. To be codified. It takes okay. six years. So it would take six years for a new president to do what Obama did. And that did, and then that faces a court challenge, and then that faces problems. Our bill makes things happen so fast in terms of emission reduction 
that there's no competition. Uh, so really, the the little nugget that we gave to Republicans, and I say we, because we didn't have anything to do with it except trying to keep it limited. It doesn't affect anything important in the Clean Power Plan. All the things that affect anything to do with health and the welfare of human beings is not affected at all. It's only greenhouse gases that have a pause in regulations according to the EPA control. But they're not doing anything now, and they really never have. So if people were to look at what the pause is, and we try to explain that, it's hard sometimes to get through to them. Uh, but we haven't given up, of course. Yeah. We'll, no, because it's, yes. Yeah, I just wanted to add that within 10 years, if we were proven wrong and the carbon tax does not create this immense uh, decrease in emissions, then Congress is actually giving the power, which cannot be challenged by courts, to the EPA to regulate as much as it wants. So in a way, we would be making the EPA stronger than ever if the pricing mechanism does not have the effect we expect. So in the United States legislative branch, we're first there's the bandwidth about seizing on this opportunity to to vote on and adopt and codify the um, vote on and adopt I should say codify is in the executive branch the the carbon tax the so that that's the 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 broadband is getting all the attention and getting mobilization the headwinds are getting senate leadership to hear any of this so CCL works with the house of representatives what's the your presence in the senate we are there too, definitely. We are there too. Um, the question whether they're moving or not, that is the question. Uh, Senator Coons is the Democrat who introduced it in the last Congress. Uh, at that time, he was um, co-sponsored with the Republican Flakey, I think. Flake? But Flake. It was Flake. Given, but it wasn't of Cruz. Arizona? It was not Cruz. It was no, not Cruz. Coons. Coons. Coons, Coons, yeah. Coons from, yeah. from Delaware, I yes. think. Not, yeah. So... He is trying to reintroduce it. He needs to find this Republican to co-sponsor it because we want to make the bill bipartisan. So um, that's what's holding up the works. Now, I really feel that the momentum is there. The momentum is building so, so strongly. For example, among Republicans, even though they all seem to be resisting, they seem to be held by a, a yoke, you know, <laughs> preventing them from move. The concern is growing so much. In fact, there was a, lunch, a conservative uh, pollster Lunt's survey that uh, found out that 75% of millennials, uh, uh, people under 40, 75% who want Congress to um, support a, let's see, a carbon dividends plan. But this is Republican millennials. Those are 75% of, yes. Repub yeah, so the, the Republicans are going to lose a lot of people if, because this is a high concern among young people. It's their future. So it's salient with them. Yeah. Regardless of party, yes. the climate change is salient with uh, the youngest of our demographics exactly. involved in the political exactly. process. So I think there's a, a momentum building that is going to be just irresistible. The dam's going to break. I think it has to break really soon uh, because of elections and whatnot. Um, Do you ever bring pictures in to these talks? And you're, we're showing where the, car, the greenhouse gas emissions were dropping and then after 2017 they started to go back up again. Do you ever use those little picks? We never have really talked science to our Democratic... Yeah, Democrats those, that's an easy flashcard, Mark. But again, it, it just takes us off the subject. We don't need to talk science anymore. We need to talk about solutions. Okay. Everybody needs to do that. Okay. Every, well, you're teaching us here then. I, mm -hmm. just, I just complimented a letter to the LA Times this morning. I don't know if it'll get published, of course, but the fact that the UN made this morning about a climate disaster that we're coming ahead, just made it last week, I think, and reported in the Times. The good thing about that is he talked about putting a carbon tax, putting a carbon price. That's what we need. Anybody, and, and you don't even bring up 113 degree Parisian day? You don't have to. They, they got it, they got that memo. If, you, if I was talking to Republicans, I would, be, I would be doing that. I actually handled one Republican as a liaison for uh, Ken Calvert out in Corona, and the conversations I have with his aide are different. Tell us. Well, I sent him a lot of the same stuff about progress that's being made on climate change in general. 
and he's a guy that I'm sure believes in climate change. I can't I can't think of a specific uh, difference other than the fact that I'm much more likely to talk about something to get. I'm just trying to get a meeting with Calvert. We have a new chapter that's starting. It's headquartered in, in Marietta. His, okay, in his district. Okay, in the district. And he is a hard one to move. I mean, we know yeah, he wins by sixty percent of the vote. He's a very hard one to move. Well, so the salience then, I guess. A, well, it's a it's a, a political demographic. I, we've got it. We've got to wrap this very quickly. I'm trying to figure out if there's a, a closing sort of pitch you'd like to make about where any listener who is, regardless of what district they're residing in, what incremental peace they can mobilize right now, today, if, if they're feeling this sort of sense of helplessness or despair, is what concrete thing quickly they could be doing to make a difference in the, the political arena. I'll make a quick statement. According to Catherine Hayhoe, a world-renowned scientist. An evangelist. Talk about, yeah. talk about climate change with your friends, your family, and strangers. Yeah. I would add um, the importance of endorsements to talk to anybody of importance, a business person, a civic leader, whatever. Talk to them about speaking up to the higher-ups, to the congressmen, about this important issue. More of that needs to be done. We need to move them all. Mark Tabbert and Virginia Bernal. I know you've got another hour and a half to talk about this because it's <laughs> you've put in so many hours in not just the prep but in the the face to face and so I'm I'm so pleased that you're challenging all of our thinking to for us to be more effective because the stakes only get higher the stakes they're immense I I really appreciate your taking the time to come in studio today thanks so much thanks so much Claudia thank, thank you a lot my guests were Mark. Tabbert and Virginia Bernal are citizen climate lobby activists giving us the latest on the Capitol Hill scene and the district offices as the political dynamics around climate change continue to develop. That was my wrap. Next week, I'm going to have on Katie Calvota. She's the founder of a new political action campaign in Orange County only, folks. Asian Americans Rising. And she's co-founder of Women for American Values and Ethics. We'll take the full hour talk with you next week. Thank you everyone for listening.